podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's got a long history, having been contested in the Olympics since its inception in 1896. It's got a long history of equality, with women competing at the Games since Paris 1924, nearly 100 years. The foil, sabre and epi will no doubt be celebrated in style in Paris 2024 too. And it was one of my personal highlights of covering the 2016 Games, running around the Olympic Park in the Rio rain to see if Team GB would win its first medal of the Games. But what is the future for fencing outside of every four years? British fencers have won nine medals in the history of the Olympics, only one gold, and funding was cut after 2016. But now we have our first ever world number one and an increased number of participants. This is Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy, where we profile the women and men responsible for sport in this country. Those that manage teams, staff, budgets, grassroots participation and overseeing those medal moments at Olympic, Paralympic and elite level. I'm John. I'm Michael. And both John and I have over two decades of experience, each of covering the major sporting events. We've travelled to Olympic and Commonwealth Games, reported from Wimbledon, the Rugby World Cup and several major football finals. We've covered World and European Championships in athletics, swimming and cycling, amongst others. And we also host the popular weekly podcast, Anything But Footy, with a focus on Olympic and Paralympic sport. Today, we're in Hendon at the Leon Paul Centre. And I'm Georgina Usher, Chief Executive of British Fencing. So nine months to go till Tokyo, Georgina. What are the chances of British fencing winning a medal at the Olympics for the first time since Tokyo, bizarrely, 1964? 1964, that is a long time ago. I, of course, would say that we are looking forward to uh, tremendous games in Tokyo. And if I was a betting person, I would love to place a bet on my athletes bringing home a medal for the first time since then. And what gives you that confidence? Well, in the last two years, we have come home with two silver world medals from the World Championships from two different athletes. And if someone had told me that day when we got the news that we'd lost funding, that fast forward, we'd be able to say, world number one, two athletes, Richard Cruz won silver in 2018, Marcus Mepstead followed that up with another silver in 2019. It's looking incredibly good. And what makes them so stand out you know i i mentioned in my introduction i went to see richard in that semi-final in in rio and he's just got better and better but what what makes them stand out because to be the medalists as we've said you have to have some kind of drive and determination i think we're looking at two very very different athletes richard has been around in fencing for a number of years i think this is going to be his possibly his fifth olympics he is a real veteran of the sport. He's up there. He has won multiple World Cups and Grand Prix. He is a um, he's a he's passionate about fencing. He loves the creativity. His style and his flair is, is just he's just beautiful to watch. He really is. Um, Marcus, on the other hand, again different type of athlete. He's 
an incredibly hard worker. He is absolutely there. He will grind it out. His fitness is phenomenal and he brings an entirely different game to the piece. And both of them, and this is the brilliant thing about fencing, we're not one size fits all. You can have two different athletes, two different personalities, two different ways of, of, of training and, and both of them can win a silver medal. How difficult is it as chief executive of an organisation then that loses funding when you've got two standout athletes that could come back with medals from world championships and Olympic Games? It, it's certainly not easy and I think that we are here thanks to the real passion of those athletes and the people around them because at the end of the day when we lost our funding, we lost athletes, they walked away from the sport, we lost coaches who went to work for other nations all the staff in that area lost their jobs and so there was we spent two years just trying to pick ourselves up off the floor and I think that if the athletes were here themselves that they would be incredibly grateful to friends and family to individual private sponsors the British fencing charity stepped up and, and supported in that area and a large number of volunteers coming back into the sport to create the system to allow those two athletes to carry on. And how difficult is it as a sport for fencing to compete then with you know very highly funded programs like cycling, like athletics, like triathlon that are winning lots of medals at Olympic Games just to find your place if you like in the pecking order? Yeah I, I have to say that Obviously, when it comes to the big funding decisions, it is about comparisons. But what we tend to do is focus on fencing. What is it going to take us to grow our participation, to provide more chances for young fencers to come in, to be successful? And how do we do the best we possibly can to help our medalists perform when it counts? And what sort of person then can be a fencer? That's a very interesting question. Um, we did a really interesting piece of research back in 2014-2015 where we looked at the behaviours of fencing. So exactly to your question, what kind of person wants to fence, likes to fence? And what we found was that um, we attract a lot of people into the sport who are, would be classed as a behavioural type of alternative. And alternative people might be considered as nerds, or goths or all sorts of other categories of people who perhaps just aren't mainstream so when I looked at the name anything but footy I'm like very appropriate name for fencing because a lot of people come into fencing and some qualitative data you know with things like I got thrown off the football team or the rugby team not welcome either because they they didn't feel they belonged or because they just fancy doing a more individual sport so we do about 50% of the young people who come into our sport classify themselves as alternative. And that has led us to our strap line, which we use for our podcast, which is Be You, Be Different, because we really welcome that diversity rather than pigeonholing people into, you know, a mainstream behavioural style. And the other really interesting bit that came out of it was that we also attract a large number of people who are creative. So people look at fencing, and they don't always see a sport. And of course, when you're in fencing, you perhaps, and particularly as myself as a competitive fencing fencer, I don't particularly necessarily connect with wanting to be, you know, look creative. Whereas four and a half times more than, say, the average population, we get people who are photographers, who work in actors, and all sorts of creative industries are attracted into our sport. And that 
also brings us a fantastic opportunity to see our sport differently and to repackage it and take it out back out to communities who might go, oh, I don't, I don't like sport. Go, well, fencing is not necessarily a sport. Is that how you then became a fencer? So my story in <laughs> my story in fencing. So I was eleven, and I have to say, I think my parents, in a desperation to keep me at school, put me into every after-school activity that there was. So I did a lot of things at school, and, and fencing was one of them. And I was useless, I have to say, completely rubbish. But I was also, and this is part of the story that I'm really passionate about, I was bullied badly at school. And I took up fencing, and fencing was a very non-judgmental space. So I went along to fencing. I was tall, this high, I'm over well, six foot and shrinking. And uh, I couldn't move my body properly. I was spotty. They gave me a mask. Brilliant. Everybody wasn't very good. Great. I wasn't very good. And it was a very accepting space and, and gave me some sanctuary to perhaps what was going on in my day-to-day life at school. And, of course, when you're tall and gangly and you're out perhaps doing a bit of hockey or other sports or even athletics like long jump and you can't move your body, you get shouted at a lot. You know, you drop the ball, you get shouted at, don't jump high enough or long enough and you, you don't feel like you fit in. And so fencing just gave me that safe space to feel like there was a place to go. And I stayed in fencing for a number of years being just not very good at it. And um, over a period of time, switched from, started at foil, switched to epee, and um, got, slowly got better. And I think that for me, when I think about what fencing, the special things fencing have, I remind myself that it's not just about how good you are. So every sport has something they can give. But that real sense of safety but self-confidence that can be built through fencing and that mentioned it before that kind of non-judgmental environment is just so important for people when they first take up sport I mean is that one of your big successes then I mean you've been here since April 2014 you came in as as that you were obviously a a competitor which probably come back to as part of the podcast but participation's up and it's not just then we started off this podcast about winning medals but actually from what you've just said not just about winning medals absolutely not and I'm really proud of the fact that we've taken fencing into communities that would never have the opportunity to do fencing and it's not just about getting communities active and I think that's a great worthy goal in and of itself but but we can do more than that and if I think back to that 11 year old girl with absolutely zero self-confidence I ask myself would I be sitting here or in a similar role if I hadn't found that confidence in a sport and I think the answer is no and so you go kind of go well how can we work with partners and we've got some great partners that we work with in communities we've got London Youth we have some tremendous projects going on there we also work with a charity called the Maslahar Charity we run a project called Muslim Girls Fence and really a lot of these projects are about developing people and we do that with the help of fencing So fencing, we don't lead with fencing. Fencing is part of that entire package that we're delivering and that opportunity for them to develop themselves. And fencing's a tool. And so that's that's something that we're really, really proud of. So how did the 11-year-old Georgina Russia with the spots, who was bullied... Don't rub it in. ...become become an elite-level fencer in her sport? 
that, yeah, another good question. I do sometimes sit here and I do think, how on earth did I get here? You said and you weren't very good. I know, I wasn't very good. You don't win medals if you're not very good. I know, but you I know. Medals. So I got, I got, I got good. And and again, I do when I talk to other athletes uh, and I talk to our funding bodies about our sport. Our sport is a slow burner. You're unlikely to come in in a combat sport age 13, 14 and suddenly win medals. And that's you. You're going to make it to the Olympics and win medals. And there's been some really interesting research in combat sports um, in the US where they look at the correlation between success at, at youth level and success later on. And in many sports, there isn't a correlation. But actually in combat sports, there's a reverse negative correlation. So almost like the better you are when you start, the less likely you are to be good when you move into the kind of senior category. And I think that's really interesting because taking it back to where I was when I started fencing, I didn't instantly receive that gratification of medals. I didn't have my parents going, you must do, you know, you must come back from fencing with a medal. There was just this utter kind of acceptance that that was something I enjoyed doing and they get, you know, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to do it and I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to do it badly, but what I call fall in love with the sport. And when you fall in love with a sport and you really enjoy it and you learn to love it, you want to keep on doing it. And the thing about fencing is you have to keep on doing it for a significant length of time. The average age of a fencer in the world top 10 in, women, in men's foil at the moment is over 30. So it's not about quick wins. So I think that that's in part answer. I think sometimes I, I got good because simply I carried on and I trained an awful lot. And someone growing up now that wants to be a footballer, for example, they can watch Cristiano Ronaldo every night on telly. If you want to be a rugby player, the Rugby World Cup is going on as we speak. You can watch it on your TV. If you want to be a fencer, how are you following the sport? Where are your role models? It's not on television every week. It's on once every four years, maybe. I think that is something that was a real consideration when I was a kid but now I look at the way kids consume uh, the internet and social media my children don't watch tv and so actually getting them to sit down and watch a rugby match with this idea that it's happening now is a little bit kind of like they look at me because they can just look at the highlights later when they want to it's about consume when you want to consume it not being forced to only watch it once every four years and I inevitably follow a number of channels on YouTube. The FIE are constantly streaming their World Cups and Grand Prix. And there is so much fencing to watch online that if you have a particular fencer that you like to follow, you can be watching not only matches that they've done recently, but if you're a developing fencer, it's incredibly interesting to go back five or six years and search for footage of those fencers and see how they progressed and changed their game. So how were you watching it when you were this enthusiastic fencer? You were getting good at the sport. How were you consuming it? What was your Roy of the Rovers, your shoot magazine, if you like? Well, looking back on it, when I was that young, it it wasn't about that. It just was I really enjoyed fencing. And I think as I got older, and obviously when... Um, when I was 15, 16, I did eventually get a little bit better. And as I said earlier, I changed the type of weapon I was using, which my heart height was definitely an advantage in that space, began to get good. But I think it was only really latterly in my early 20s when I thought, actually, I really want to do this properly. 
that I actually thought about other people doing the sport and said, well, if I want to be really good, what do I need to be? And that's where you look for role models, you look for nations who've got particularly great styles that you might want to copy. But prior to that, it was very much being done, I suppose, in a, in a, in a, in a bubble, but a very happy bubble. What made you stop? I know, I know you're still competing in a, in a over, oh, I, I won't say the age, in a, in a veteran category. Yeah. Um, that sounds even worse. <laughs> I, I think it does. It's over 40, but not yet over 50. Yeah. Let's put it like that. Sorry, I was digging a hole for myself there. But what made you stop? What made you stop and then become a CEO which, and, and, and a successful CEO at that from you know, the statistics that we've talked about? So I didn't stop completely. I think that's probably the best answer to that question. I actually, I was trying to count the number of times I technically retired from the sport, <laughs> which, which is two, three, four, depending on what classifies as a retirement. But again, when you have a lifelong passion for a sport, I, I find it incredibly difficult to walk away. I absolutely still love fencing. And if I have the opportunity to fence, which as you get older and more busy, less of that um, and when I started um, I came back into the sport for either the second or third time just after I'd had my son in 2010 and at that time I had um, I was on maternity leave from my previous role and I had decided that I probably wasn't going to end up going back into that full-time job um, I was an operations director for a, um, a small business that was based near the city and there was so much going on with London 2012 that who wasn't inspired to go, well, it's a great time to do something with my sport. So I decided that I would pick up my weapons and, and you know, try and be the best I could possibly be. I retrained as a coach during that time and started a club at my daughter's school. And I really sort of threw myself into getting back involved with fencing. And through that, I then got the kind of tap on the shoulder as to, well, perhaps you'd be interested to stand for election for the board of British fencing, which up until that point I hadn't really considered, but I thought, well, why not? You know, really love to help out the sport that I care about so much. So I was elected as a board director um, and I came into post after the Olympics and then subsequent to that put my hat in the ring for the CEO job but at the same time during that I am still carrying on fencing and in fact it was six months into my appointment where I finally won my Commonwealth gold so uh, yeah do you think there are do you think businesses could take a little bit more from people in your situation? People that have been elite sports people. You said you were an operations director at a company in the city. Do you think there's there's skills that perhaps are more transferable than than business industry leaders realise? I think that there are transferable skills in both directions. So I certainly found that that for most of my life I've had a kind of dual career. So I've done my fencing. And then on the other, my other life is business consulting, a background in IT, project and program management, very, very organized. But of course you need to be super organized if you're an athlete. And so those skills are entirely transferable. Nobody just accidentally goes and wins an Olympic medal. They are absolutely rigorous and focused about every aspect of their lives. And so it's relatively straightforward to transfer that into business. And so I think that 
from that perspective, I don't always think businesses perhaps realise how much sport does have the skills because they would see, yes, of course, they must be fantastic at fencing, but actually there's an awful lot of transferable skills that can be taken back into um, business. And as a fencer, is it beneficial that you're the CEO or in some ways are you too close to it and actually you know too much about it and then the decisions that you have to make are harder? I think that you don't need to know about... to. <laughs> You don't need to do the sport to be a chief executive of the sport. I think that's very clear. Um, I think that with any senior leadership team, it definitely helps to have that knowledge. And certainly, sometimes decisions are harder for me because perhaps I do care that little bit more. And yes, perhaps that the stress of that is something I, I do need to manage. I still have to make the right decisions, but perhaps I'm a lot closer to what is going to be the consequence of that decision. But then I look at some of my senior leadership team and we have have people who've come in from all sorts of other sports and other areas of the sport industries and they've been able to provide that real check and challenge that debate that healthy tension that enables me to question my thoughts and, and and where we're going and the one thing you do need though is passion i don't think it's possible to have a career in sport unless you're passionate about sport and passionate about people because we are a people people industry it's we often talk about sport or we talk about these kind of bits of metal that we call medals and we place so much important about importance on those but it's not really at the end of the day because it's where sport is where people come together to in the, in the most part to enjoy themselves and i think that that's most important and that passion keeps us going rather than necessarily being a fencer or if you're working in another sport, doing that sport. And are there enough women leading British sport at the moment? You, you're one, we, we had the pleasure of meeting Sarah Sutcliffe from Table Tennis England. She's another, we're seeing Jane from gymnastics in, in a few days. Are there enough? <sighs> Until we probably reach 50%, I'd say there are never enough. But having come from outside of sport, the one thing I will say is that as a female chief exec, I don't think I've ever felt so welcomed into an industry as a female. Um, and that's something we should be really proud of. So I don't feel any different. If I walk into a room of other chief execs in sport, it, it isn't an issue that I'm a woman. I don't feel like I'm sticking out like a sore thumb. It has been an incredibly positive experience for me as a female leader. And I think that in British fencing, for example, I'm really proud of the fact that we are, well, we were 50-50, and I think we've just, with a, a recent addition to the team, gone over that in terms of the number of, of females. And that's all the way through. It's not just, a, a, you know, often it is, well, we've got lots of women, but they're working at the, the kind of the grassroots of, of administration layer, right up in my senior executive team. And there's always more work to be done, and I don't think we should lose focus on that but we should also be rightly proud of the environment that we are creating where people like me come in perhaps from another industry as a female leader and choose to stay because we feel welcome and my gender isn't an issue. So one more question on, on, on you and you in fencing. Will there be a moment, probably like when you were uh, competing or, or working, will there be a moment when you like... I think I've taken British fencing as far as I can go. I want to go and do something else. Almost certainly. 
I don't think it's healthy for any organisation to have the kind of chief executive for life. And whilst I say fencing has me for life, I'll never walk away from fencing. I do things, um, I work with the International Federation, I'm on their Women in Fencing Council. Um, we're At the moment I'm involved in rolling out safeguarding, part of international fencing. There, there are bits and pieces I, I coach at the weekend with a local club, I'm not giving that up. And so there's a lot of things I do in fencing that I would do even if tomorrow I, I you know, went and got another job. And so of course I think there will come a time and, and hopefully it's a time where, where that's right for the organisation and, and for fencing where somebody with, with, who wants to take the sport perhaps a, a new or build on the work that I've done, hopefully, will come in. So building on that point, you've spoken about two guys, Marcus and Richard, that are strong medal hopes for, for yeah. Team GB in Tokyo. Where do you think the next generation is coming from? Is that part of your remit? Are you working on those pathways are there more people coming through? Absolutely, and it's one of our five objectives is to build that pathway for international success. And in, to do that, we have our athlete development programme, which is largely funded at the moment by Sport England. And through that, we give a large number of young fencers throughout the country opportunities to come in and learn about what it is going to take to win and beat the best. And so that pipeline is extremely important and it takes time. And, and it's one of the key messages that we will give parents and athletes when they come into our programmes is this is not a programme that's going to turn you around in two years that, you know, and, and make you world champion. This is a programme that you need, you need to be able to manage your life, to manage your education, to think about what you're going to do as a career and how you are going to kind of almost in the way that I did keep a career going and compete as an athlete until such time that you reach a level where you are lucky enough to be able to attract the funding to do it full time. And am I right in saying that your remit is not para fencing? Correct, yes. Why is that? Actually, I think that's just historical, I have to say. It's interesting because there are it's the same in table tennis. There's another the one who looks after para. It just seems it seems from a public facing point of view it's a bit like the whole argument that we often had team, team gb, GB power gb, GB. Yeah. they're the same thing but of course in the sporting world yeah they're not yes and yeah. I, and sometimes you know you 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 move into organizations and you pick up just the history of how the national governing bodies developed we as british fencing have we also in fencing have the home nation bodies so we've got england fencing scottish fencing and so on and so responsibilities in the world of fencing are mixed and and between us and British fencing look after the GB pathway and also in terms of England we do look after grassroots participation but if you were talking to Scottish fencing they look after grassroots participation in Scotland funded by Sports Scotland. John mentioned right at the start one of his highlights of 2016 was was watching Richard Cruz I was actually at the same time on the Copacabana Watching the cycling, yes. watching the cycling road race, and together with a colleague, I was running around, going into every bar, cafe that I could find. Going, has anyone got the fencing on? Now, I'm not sure many people ever have run around the Copacabana, yeah. searching out a television to watch fencing. Would it have made a significant impact though if Richard Cruz had converted fourth into a medal? So I have, of course, you think about that, and. 
I think that if we look at the funding situation, I have to say that I don't believe that if Richard had converted that medal, we would be any different to perhaps where Badminton was, bringing home a medal and still not getting funding. But for Richard, would it have meant being on question of sport? Would it have meant more public recognition? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's, that's where we do get that link between performance right at the top of the sport and then that creates that ability for an athlete to step into a more visible publicly visible um, activities as you say such as getting on to programs on the television and so on and so forth but we still had a phenomenal number of people connect with our sport we were lucky we were one of the early sports and so when fencing looked like it might deliver a medal, we actually got an awful lot of publicity at that time. So many people I knew would go, oh, I, I saw the fencing. And in fact, it was on the BBC without having to press a red button. It was there. So you couldn't miss it if you turned on your telly. Um, I'm actually quite jealous. I was, believe it or not, I was at home watching Richard. I bought a new television specifically for the purpose. Um, <laughs> And I feel terrible now for that yeah. clunky name drop of the Copacabana <laughs> when the t- CEO was at home. I was at home. I was, and it was it was unbelievably exciting. And it was, you know, but with any luck, you know, Richard, there's there's another opportunity, and hopefully this time. Yeah, I mean, just before we wrap up, manage expectations. But is it vital that one of those guys brings a medal home from Tokyo? Back to what I was saying earlier. Again. It's very tempting to get fixated on medals. But if we get fixated on medals, then how, how do, does that make perhaps the athletes who don't achieve those medals feel? And it's something that we really need to be, I think, in the future more and more conscious of. Because we have had a very successful system in the past that's churned out an awful lot of medals. But the casualty for British fencing when you don't have that renewal in funding and those the way those athletes are then feel about themselves I mean I talk a lot um, about failure and how important failure is to learn and develop not just as an athlete but as a person and the question is is I failed to make it to the Olympics so back in my dim and distant memory there's a horrible fencing match which took place in Armenia uh, in a dusty sports hall with no TV coverage and it was at that moment where I with by one hit failed to make it to the Olympics and the problem is is it's very easy to be defined by that for the rest of my life oh you know you, but did you make it to the Olympics well no I, you know, I didn't mutter 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 and I think it's important as a national governing body that we don't allow that fixation on did you win, did you win, to be the messaging. Because athletes can do so much more. Our athletes at the moment, and even athletes like Marcus and Richard, you know, they get involved in community projects. They coach kids. They bring so much more and inspire so much more in the community that, yes, a medal would be a fantastic recognition of their abilities and their hard work, but it absolutely shouldn't define them as people, and therefore it shouldn't define us as a national governing body. You know, is that successful? I go down to our Muslim girls project, girls fence project, and when I look at some of those young girls and what they're achieving in their lives, in the small part, thanks to the work we're doing, I go, well, that's incredible success. We should be talking about that more. And 
And for me, we have to hold on to that and we have to incorporate into all our athlete development programmes the ability for fencers to step away from a fixation on medals and think about their development as people. And we are working with um, an organisation called the True Athlete Project, which does very, very interesting work in that area, allowing athletes to be more mindful of, of who they are and as role models and to connect with themselves and their own personal development and feel like they are worth something. If you come back from a competition without that gold medal and you wake up the next day, I don't want an athlete to feel worthless. I want that athlete to know that they are still, they have still so much that they can give fencing and they probably have given fencing. And I do, and anyway, and I think that from, if I can achieve one thing in, as we said earlier, my remaining years with British fencing, I'd really like that to be the thing it's to say that yes of course we're going for medals but we also want to make you the very best version of you and to, to believe in everything that you can contribute to communities not just at the highest level but also at community and grassroots level it sounds a very good aim and uh, we wish you all the best of luck thank you uh, georgina usher chief executive of british fencing thanks for talking to great british bosses thank you very much Social Podcast Network.